Hello and welcome to The Messy Studio with Rebecca Kroll, the podcast at the intersection of art, travel, entrepreneurship, philosophy, and life in general. I am Ross Tickner, Rebecca's audio producer, podcast guru, and her son. On today's episode, we are talking about the messiest studio ever. Did you know there was a well-known artist whose studio was so impressive for its mess that the entire place was reproduced piece by piece in a museum after his death? We are talking about British painter Francis Bacon, famous for his expressionistic figurative work, whose reproduced studio is permanently housed at the Hugh Lane Gallery in Dublin, Ireland. Today we're going to look at the story of his studio chaos and offer words of encouragement for those whose studios may not be famous, but perhaps almost as messy as Francis Bacon's. With me as always is Rebecca Kroll. Hello everyone. Uh, yes, a subject dear to my heart, the messy studio. <laughs> and no, I'm not as bad as Francis Bacon. <laughs> You'd have to try really hard to be. I would have to try very hard. So, yeah, and I've I've had the opportunity to see um, the studio as it was transported piece by piece to Dublin and is now installed at the Hugh Lane Gallery there. I've been there a couple of times, and um, it's it's pretty fascinating. And there's displays that also talk about uh, kind of close-ups of what's in there because you're just sort of peering in through a uh, a little window thing so you can see inside but then there are there's other information in that same um, gallery space about what was in there and how they had to work to transport this piece by piece from uh, London to Dublin this seems like a like and- a messy studio pilgrimage it's it's a quite a story. <laughs> I mean, really, that this uh, his studio was really treated kind of like an archaeological site, but a little bit different in the sense that it was going to be you know put back into place. Um, they were there was just layers of stuff that were unearthed and documented and put back as they were, and so it was a quite a huge process. Yeah, I believe the article I read on it said that there were 7,000 pieces that were documented and moved from one specific location in his studio to another. Right. And I mean, this this was not a big a big space. I think it was like 12 by 20 feet. Um, so it was, it was not only, you know, really very crowded with things. It was small. It was rather dark. He had a skylight. Um, and, you know, at the time, he was really regarded as one of uh, England's most famous painters, the most well-known and regarded painters. So the place where he worked as having that status is, is, I think, one of the first things that you think, really, he could have had something else. He could have moved if he, if he wanted to. And so right there, you kind of, I think it's kind of fascinating that he preferred this. And there, there's a number of photographs of him posing in his studio as if he was kind of proud of it. I mean, really, <laughs> he didn't. He would pose in the studio, and some of the those pictures it looks even messier than um, what you see at the Hugh Lane Gallery. I mean, right, like he had to do the opposite of tidy up a little bit. Exactly, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and maybe you know at the time of his death, for whatever reason, they 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 took it right as it was. Maybe he had cleaned up just slightly, but I was struck by, I guess, the amount of stuff on the floor in some of those photos. Um, yeah, in some of the just, photos where he's where he's standing in his studio on top of this pile of stuff, 
You know, you can see this like this radiator that uh, you can kind of guess at the height if it's kind of a standard radiator. And there has to be, I don't know, a foot, foot and a half of just debris on the floor that he's standing on top of. Yeah. And when I saw that with the radiator, well, obviously I thought fire hazard, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and it was a, it was kind of a, a walk-up studio. It was up a narrow flight of stairs. And there's, you know, accounts of maneuvering, you know, when his paintings and things were removed, that that wasn't easy, taking them up and down those stairs. He painted large paintings. Um, and they found something like 100 destroyed canvases in that studio. And that part boggles me because I think I, it must have been rolled up or something. I mean... Anyway, it's a small space. It's extremely crowded. And, you know, I, uh, I will go into some of the stuff that was in there. But I have to start out by saying, why is this so fascinating? I mean, does it sort of horrify us or does it sort of validate those of us who are a little on the messy end? I mean, um, it's, it's kind of, I mean, it's odd because his paintings are not messy, I mean, his paintings are kind of these surreal, distorted figures, but they're typically, and I think it's so interesting, they're typically on a background that is very spare, very minimal. There's maybe some suggestion of architecture behind the figure, certainly not the chaos that he surrounded himself with. And the the um, the difference between his environment where he worked and what he's depicting in these images is really stark. I mean, is <laughs> I don't know. The whole thing fascinates me, to be honest. Um, you know, his working methods are kind of evident in this chaos because he collected a lot of photographs, um, and he worked with some some of his figures, like the he worked with the popes. He had a whole series of the popes, and so some of the some of his interest was in maybe history or politics. Uh, but he had all these newspaper articles and things that were just stuffed in boxes. And I guess, you know, what struck me is you can collect all this stuff. And it's, some of it seemed to be reference for his work. But I can't believe that he could find, I mean, it wasn't like they were carefully filed in folders where, oh, I want to look at pictures of the Pope. No. I mean, how... It's almost like by collecting it, it was part of him. And then he probably, I am totally guessing here, didn't actually look at a lot of stuff after he brought it in there. Um, and I don't know if it's, I didn't come across in any articles really describing how he used this stuff. And whether that whether he ever talked about it, I don't know. Well, um, I don't I don't want to psychoanalyze this guy too much. I'm certainly not qualified to do so. But it seems to me like maybe his art was a way for him to uh, to organize the chaos of his life. That that this was his way of bringing order to chaos was was through his artwork. Well, that's you know I think that there's some validity that he did have a pretty. Uh, I don't know. It wasn't what you'd call a common, peaceful life. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, but to work in that amount of chaos, I, that's the part that I'm mystified by. And I am a person who's not very organized and, and whose studio does contain uh, piles of things, but not to that extent. And, you know, there's something about the way things interact, though, that's kind of interesting that 
I've kind of felt throughout my life that if things are not always neat and clean and they're not always perfectly organized, you do come up with some interesting juxtapositions. I mean, you might find an old drawing of yours and next to it is something more recent and you might think, oh, look at the interactions between these two. Whereas if they'd been filed very separately, carefully, maybe you wouldn't see that. And that it seems like um, that's kind of a basic creative step that you know might have been something that was was going on for him the fact that all this was jumbled up and that maybe there were interesting you know connections that he was sensing there i really don't know um all i know i i, I could say in a, in a kind of you know easy superficial way i guess it just shows that there's no one right way to organize a studio um and really this you know it's about what comes out of it not what it looks like inside but nevertheless this is kind of fascinating and I, I think it was an interesting topic because a lot of artists are concerned about organizing their spaces their studios and I mean you know we even have a, had an episode about storage solutions cleanup solutions things like that um, studio tips and hacks I think it was called uh, and even you know those of us that are a little bit on the messier end you know I mean, I I like things to be somewhat organized. If I want, you know, a stick of charcoal, I know where to look for it or something like that, you know. Um, There's so often I, like this struggle between the amount of stuff that you have and, and the amount of space that you have. And uh, you at least want to know where everything is. Yeah, and that's, that's what's striking about Bacon Studios is so small. And he didn't have efficient storage of any kind. Not that I think he would have used it very well if he had it. But, you know, it's just, uh, yeah, when you work in a smaller space, most of us feel like we have to be a little bit neater. And I noticed that here in New Mexico when I, I have a nice bigger studio now. But when I first started working out here, it was only about 10 by 10 feet. And I realized I got quite a bit neater in there. I couldn't I couldn't deal with the chaos that I I could in a bigger studio where it was spread out more. Um, so, yeah, it, it's it's all kind of mystifying how he did this. And I, I think, you know, for artists, you know, we, we get a certain amount of lecturing or something at some point from, from a teacher or from something we read about you, you need to respect your art materials. You need to clean everything all the time. You need to put things away properly. You need to take care of your stuff. And... Um, and that's that's excellent advice, I would say. But if it's not in you to do that very meticulously, then somebody like Francis Bacon is a shining example that, yes, you can make great art without that step. <laughs> and there's, there's some of the photos of his studio, and it, we'll put it we'll put a link or something up on the Facebook page that can show you these photos. Um, but one of the things that struck me about there's pictures where you you probably see i don't know 30 paintbrushes within you know a couple feet of each other stuck in cans with the bristles down um presumably there was or uh probably no longer but at some point there was solvent in all those cans with the brushes stuck in them or maybe they were just sort of glued to the bottom of the can and it's like the worst thing you can do to your brushes, but it's something I do with my brushes. I stick them in cans like that all the time. And yet anybody who 
takes care of their brushes doesn't do that. They, you know, they clean them and solve it and then wash them and put them somewhere to dry and all that. Um, and I don't know, on some level, it's, it sort of reassures me to think, well, you know, it's the best thing. It's the best practice to take care of your tools, but you can get by without it. And um, if it's not something that comes naturally to you, you know, don't sweat it too much. I think he's a, uh, he's really, Bacon is very interesting that way. Um, well, and I, that's an interesting point because it, I, I think part of what you lose in having this kind of messier workspace is that care for your, your tools and your materials. And you're, you're going to end up spending money rebuying things that you've kind of destroyed. Um, and I think Bacon was in a situation where he didn't really care about that, mm-hmm. um, you know, and a, a lot of people, that's just the way that they work through their entire career. Um, but if if you you can work a little bit less, a little bit more tidy, uh, then you're probably going to save quite a bit of money on on materials and tools. Yeah, that that is absolutely true. And I I am guilty of destroying things, you know, that. I end up having to replace because I didn't take care of them. In in my own work, you know, brushes are not, I don't use them a lot. I use them in certain ways that it doesn't matter if they're not pristine. Um, but no, I totally get your point. And um, yeah, <laughs> it makes total sense. All of that stuff about being neat, tidy, taking care of things makes sense. Um, and And some people struggle with it. And it it is a it's kind of a kind of an odd thing. I mean, I think I've mentioned before that it's only in my studio that I'm like that. I, I really like a tidy house. I like an organized kitchen. I don't know why it's so different in the studio, but I really have to push myself there to to keep it organized. And um, and that's I don't know. It's something about the creative process, and I I just. I just can't focus on cleaning up and organizing. And I, I have to push myself at the end of the day to even like scrape down my palette. And there are times I come in in the morning and it I didn't do it. And there's, you know, dried paint on my palette. And, you know, it's stupid, really. It's like a waste of time then to have to clean up something that would have been easier to clean when it wasn't all dried up and crusty. So <laughs> anyway... I, I did just do a, a quick Google search because I was wondering if uh, what Francis Bacon's house was like, if he oh. kept a tidy house or if his house was in a similar shape. And I couldn't find any information just off of a a quick uh, a quick search. Mm-hmm. But that is something that that I kind of wonder now is uh, is what was what was his living conditions like? Yeah, or did he live in his studio? I mean, I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, that's very possible. I think I think there was sort of a day bed in there, but it was covered with stuff. So anyway, yeah, it's fascinating. Somehow the studio can be a very um, different environment. It's kind of compartmentalized or something. And uh, and I actually feel more energized in the studio when it's a little bit messy. And that's a part that mystifies me because I don't feel that way in the house. If the house is messy, I feel... It's just like my energy is dissipated. I, I need to tidy it a little bit before I can see straight, really. And it, it's so different. But anyway. Real quick, I got to let our listeners know about what's new at Cold Wax Academy. Rebecca and Jerry are busy preparing new presentations for their spring quarter weekly live interactive sessions. 
The topics for spring are shape, scale, and proportion, and self-coaching to improve your work habits and productivity. As always, there will be plenty of opportunities to interact with Rebecca, Jerry, and other members, along with critique sessions, feedback about your paintings, and of course, a deep dive into the three selected topics of the quarter. Cold Wax Academy has been receiving lots of rave reviews from members. They know it is the best online learning for cold wax painting available and the only membership program dedicated to this medium. Find out more at coldwaxacademy.com. That's coldwaxacademy.com. All right, let's get back into it. Well, and I think, you know, as you mentioned earlier, he did have a difficult life. Um, and maybe interesting to, to tell a little bit about that. So, um, you know, he had a, he had a traumatic early life and he started out living, he was born to an English family living in Dublin and they moved back and forth between Ireland and England. And this is, he lived between 1909 and 1992. So, um, this, uh, reconstruction of his studio happened after 92, but, um, Anyway, he, uh, he, his father was rather abusive towards him. Um, he struggled with his sexuality as a, as a gay man when uh, that was not even legal. Um, and he had all these, I don't know, quite a few kind of upsetting relationships, abusive relationships, um, including uh, the suicide of an emotionally disturbed, I would say, lover, um, and other deaths of people that were really important to him as he was growing up. So... Really, he had a had a pretty hard life. He also, though, had this reputation of being um, what they call a, a bon vivant. You know, he liked to go out and drink and party, a uh, gamble. He's quite a gambler, I guess. He had a lot of friends. He had just, you know, he was social, and so it's not like he was isolated. Um, he had, you know, he had a, a a life outside the studio. And uh, as far as his work, um, the quote, I'm not sure where I got this from now, a uniquely bleak chronicler of the human condition, someone called him. Sorry, I don't have an, a, a, I can't attribute that quote. Um, his figures are, you know, frankly, pretty disturbing. The, the faces are twisted and distorted. Um, the series of the Pope is famous painting the screaming Pope. I mean, this Pope with his huge gaping mouth screaming. These are uh, difficult paintings and large. Um, and this is, uh, he was at one, at one time regarded as Britain's most important living painter. So he had a lot of recognition and presumably wealth that came with us. Um, and so, yeah, you do wonder, well, if his life had been just kind of more calm, um, would that have been reflected in his art? Uh, probably he wouldn't have made figures that had this um, uniquely bleak character, as somebody said. Um, and the the story of his studio that, you know, I mentioned earlier, it's a small space and no view of the outside world other than the sky, the skylight, which I have to imagine is being rather dirty. I mean, it's in London and I don't know, he probably didn't concern himself with trying to clean it. Um, and he worked there for over 30 years. And the descriptions of um, what was found when they, and I'll tell you the story in a minute, of how 
you know, they decided to to reproduce this studio as it was. Um, the stuff that went in there, what they saw, piles on the floor. And, and he was apparently walking on papers all the time. And you can see that in the pictures of the studio. There's some open floor, but there's papers everywhere. Um, and, and there was one commentary that apparently he liked what happened to the papers when he walked on them, that he was ripping them and transforming them and so on. Um, and so, uh, as you said, there were like 7,000 items in here. And these included, I have a list here, 2,000 samples of painting materials. Um, and I, I presume that means... Um, you know, the, the paints and things, 1,500 photographs of himself, other people, and reproductions of his own work. So if he had an article in a magazine or something, he would he would cut out the pictures of his own work and, and keep those. Um, as I mentioned, 100 destroyed canvases. He would slash them if he didn't like them. Um, big cans of paint on the floor, countless handwritten notes, drawings, he had books everywhere, and some of them had pages torn out. Some of them, they're displayed on the floor. But the range of topics of the books was kind of interesting, from sort of medical books to cookbooks, you know, everything. Uh, art books, of course. Uh, lots of boxes. Um, corduroy pants, and apparently he, he wore corduroys all the time, then he ripped them up, and he the texture of the corduroy was somehow important in his use of the rag. Um, as I mentioned, all these brushes, I mean, dozens of them, uh, actual trash, like, you know, can lids and jars of dried up paint. And so that's, that's what this uh, Barbara Dawson encountered when she first saw the studio. And Barbara Dawson um, was, uh, was the person who recognized that this was a project and, and she was from the Hugh Lane Gallery okay, we have this this rather amazing site. What are we going to do with it? You know, and do we just like throw it all away? No, this, this is a really well-known painter. So what can we learn? What can we gain by trying to uh, save this stuff? And um, so there was actually a lot of uh, criticism that was aimed at this project. And it, it opened in 2001. So it took a little while uh, for this all to happen because he died in 92. And there was criticism as in, as we can imagine, why do you want to preserve this junk, this heap of stuff, this incredible mess? Uh, well, you know, there was a vision there because now it is a huge attraction in Dublin. It's received a lot of favorable publicity. People really are interested in this. But this Barbara Dawson, who was the Hugh Lane Gallery director at the time, maybe still is, I'm not sure about that, but she was taking a big risk in doing this. Um, well, she did not know what she was going to find, really. Like, she's looking at this piles of stuff. Um, what's in there? Well, it seems like we could just learn so much about a person, um, not only at the time by by kind of dissecting this environment, but also um, as time goes on and and uh, new technologies become available or 
um, uh, new research gets done on the human condition. What what could we find out about this person? Right. You know, I as you were talking, you're talking about him walking on papers and liking that sensation. And that reminded me of this kind of more contemporary phenomenon of uh, ASMR, which I don't know if you know anything about, but no. um, it's the autonomous sensory meridian response. Um, and it's like a tingling sensation that people get from uh, certain sounds. Uh, so often these are like crinkly sounds. Oh. Uh, it's it's beca- it's like this whole YouTube phenomenon now where people make videos of them like unwrapping candy bars and that crinkling sound gives people certain sensations when they listen to it. Wow. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so that I, I kind of wonder if that's what was going on with him walking on the papers, if it, yeah. if it was giving him like this kind of auditory synesthetic sensation, you know, where you're, you get that tingling in the back of your spine. That's really um, interesting. Yeah. And, and you would think there'd be other tactile sensations just from being in an environment like that. Yeah. The crinkling when right, you walk, right. the, the clanging of all these cans together. Um, maybe something just about the sense of the kind of claustrophobic sense, maybe it was somehow centering for him. It just, he, he built, he really purposefully, I would have to say, built this environment to suit himself. And whatever was, whatever was behind that is, it's really uh, fascinating. And, and it will be, I guess, a bit of a mystery because I don't believe he ever said that much about it. As I said, he seemed kind of pleased with it all. And he would be willingly pose for photos in the middle of it. But uh yeah, and you have to think, well, he, he wanted it. Otherwise, it wouldn't have been that way. Um, but yeah, that's really interesting. Like, what was it actually like to be in there? And and I I guess from what uh, Barbara Dawson has said about this, and there's a little uh, YouTube about her talking about this on um, on, on YouTube, as I said, she, uh, she didn't know what she was going to find, but she did hope that there would be some better understanding of his work and his work processes and his thought processes, and and there is information about that. That um, when they when they kind of look through all these source materials and things that he collected, they they could see um, certain connections and things. So the the process of doing this, though, is is really when you think about what this took, it's kind of amazing. So they they uh, the the Hugh Lane Gallery worked with a team of curators, um, conservators and archaeologists. Well, the conservators part came in with, okay, he had stuff on his walls. He had um, things tacked up, old pieces of paper everywhere. Yeah, and paint on his actual walls, I believe, Yeah, too. yes, he painted on the walls, and they, they took the walls out as, be, as best they could. Um, and, and, re, and they are also at the Hugh Lane Gallery. And the, but when you think about the ephemeral aspect of newspapers and and little things, little bits of paper, and to uh, to preserve those uh, in, in order to transport them, but they're not going to turn to dust or something. Um, so they had conservators involved. They had archaeologists involved, and this is what I kind of love. The archaeologists had to map out and catalog everything they uncovered, which, as we have said, was about two, about 7,000 items. And everything was taken, including... Uh, some dust off the floor. <laughs> like, oh, God. <laughs> I'm not kidding. And there was, there's a little bit about how they moved something and there was dust on the floor and they carefully swept that up. So uh, I don't think there was a lot of floor to collect dust, but um, 
they they took whatever they could. Um, do, do, do you know if they had any kind of like like respiratory gear or any kind <laughs> of uh, PPE for this? This sounds like it like a hazardous material site. Or you, you can imagine you know? people in their has, hazmat suits, but I, I mean, I'm sure there's all kinds of solvents and chemicals that he's working oh, with. Oh my and... gosh, I didn't read anything about that, but um, yeah, it it must have been a, a sort of unpleasant <laughs> to do this. Um, and she, when when uh, Barbara Dawson first entered the studio, she described the experience um, as somewhat like uh, what she, the feeling she gets from Bacon's paintings, not the imagery, as we said, is rather clean, but she felt this intense, charged blitzkrieg of sensation. <laughs> um, an art critic that she cites referred to what was in the studio as compost heaps of imagery. <laughs> I love that. That that somehow led to his complex, emotionally charged figures. So, <laughs> if anybody finds this um, interesting and you have to see what this is about, you know, you can certainly uh, look this up and uh, on the internet. And there are lots of photos. There's also a book that has documented all this um, this mess. So I guess in the end, um, I, I'm not so sure why I wanted to talk about it. We wanted to talk about it. I told you, do you know there's this thing? And you said, oh, we have to do an episode about that. Um, yeah, I, I just felt like it was in our wheelhouse. <laughs> yes, hopefully slightly outside the wheelhouse. But <laughs> um, yeah, the messiest studio ever. And I actually tried to find out if there were other artists who had uh, anything close to this, and I, I really couldn't uh, find anyone else that I could say, oh, and so-and-so did this too. This is pretty, this is a, a unique um, a studio. <laughs> so if you're ever in Dublin, you have to go to the Hugh Lane Gallery and check this out and spend some time looking at their documentation of how this was done. And I'm kind of eager to see it again now that I've looked into it a little bit more and uh, look at it with new appreciation. And they have some of his paintings hanging around too as well. So um, I don't know what the takeaway is for us as artists with all this, um, but I guess I suppose in a big picture, I don't know what's the relationship between the space you work in and your own process. There, there's always a relationship. We we have control over what goes on in the studio, and um, I suppose you could look at Bacon and say, well, you know, if my space. I'm not talking about me, but if someone is neat and organized, if my space is neat and organized, um, am I possibly cutting off some channel to this kind of free association? Um, uh, as I mentioned earlier, this thing next to that thing, even though uh, they're not particularly related, um, can spark something creative and the kind of juxtaposition of things that when everything isn't all neatly sorted, but what is the balance, you know, where you can find things and you feel that if, I, I think for me, it kind of gets down to if someone comes into the studio to see my work, um, I don't want them to be really distracted by everything else. And this has happened to me because, uh, and, and I, I'm, I'm still guilty of this, but my painting table, where I actually have my tubes of paint, you know, is a huge mess, as you know. Um, you know, tubes of paint with no lids, they're piled up on each other, they're crusted with paint. 
I kind of know what's what. I'm fine with it, and it works for me. But I can't tell you how many times people have come into the studio. Oh, there's your paintings. Interesting. Oh, but look at your paint table. You know, <laughs> they're taking pictures of it, and you know, <laughs> like. Well, and that's that's our. Um... You know, our our imagery for the messy studio is, is a pile of paint tubes. It is. And I, I mean, part of me is, yes, yes, that's where I paint. But look at the walls. Look at the paintings, you know. And then sometimes people say, well, your paintings are very calm. Or they're very organized or something. And, uh, and yet, look at your painting table. How do you even know what color is what? And all I can say is, well, somehow I do. They're like old friends. And, you know, I know that this is my you know, ultramarine blue because it has this particular dent in it or something in the tube. I can't really explain it. Um, but I get the, I think that's for me, there is a, a desire when people come into the studio that they can see the work and not be distracted. And I, it, it would be hard to walk into Bacon's studio and actually see what he'd been doing. I mean, I suppose what he was working on at the moment would have been visible, but Beyond that, mm, <laughs> a fascinating mess. <laughs> well, do you have any final thoughts to wrap up this episode? Uh, pretty much just that. I mean, I guess, you know, just to remind everyone, this is one of the most respected figurative artists of the 20th century <laughs> who who worked this way. And maybe it gives, if you're a little on the messy side, maybe it gives you uh, some permission, if you need that, to be as messy as you want to be. <laughs> All right. Well, that just about wraps up this episode of The Messy Studio. For more from The Messy Studio, please check out www.messystudiopodcast.com and sign up for the email list. You can also find The Messy Studio on Facebook, as well as public profiles for both Rebecca Kroll and myself, Ross Tickner. For more from Rebecca Kroll, please check out www.rebeccacroll.com and Cold Wax Academy at www.coldwaxacademy.com and sign up for the email lists to stay up to date on events, book signings, and openings. The Messy Studio Podcast is a core publication management production. Thanks for listening. We'll be back again next week with more art and entertainment. In the meantime, embrace your creative space, messy or otherwise. Thanks, everybody. <laughs>